0: Welcome everybody to Recovery Machine. I'm your co-host Nathan, joined as always by co-host Corey. How are you doing today, co-host Corey? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. We got a lot of uh, particulates in the air up here in pollen, but not as bad as you guys down there in Mission. You guys had some pretty severe smoke and
1: poor air quality. Yeah, the smoke from the forest fires really settles down in the Fraser Valley and it um, just kind of gets trapped in here. So by yesterday afternoon, it was just brutal and couldn't see couldn't see any of the mountains or the tree line or anything. And it's finally c- cleared up a little bit this morning after some some breeze came through. but but, yeah, it's been rough. so shout out to anyone who's has some underlying respiratory issues because I'm sure you're not having a good a good time right now,
0: yeah, challenging for sure. Yeah, we've got a couple things to talk about today what are we going to start with?
1: Well, we're going to bring it back to a news item, uh, a couple of news items that are connected to the same place, and that's Surrey Memorial Hospital here in British Columbia. And it's been in the news a lot lately for just the state of of congestion, the state of dysfunction that it's in. And there's been some outspoken people that have kind of finally come out and, and spoken about it. So we wanted to talk about that. That got us talking with each other about, about triggers, about there's a whole bunch of human beings behind this stressful workplace and that there are real life triggers that arise from working in a in conditions like that. And um that there's a that there's an implication. There's an effect on mental health. There's effect on substance use. And um we kind of got thinking about what our own experiences were and what our own triggers were. So that's where we're gonna go with it today.
0: Yeah, sounds good. So we'll start with the state of affairs at Surrey Memorial Hospital. And uh, like you said, there've been several letters, several groups of authorities, uh, hospital leaders. Their CEO of Surrey Memorial has been in, in talks with the provincial government. And they're trying to sort out what appears to be a, a, a now a, a very dangerous situation. They have been short-staffed, like everybody, for a long time,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know this could be traced back to, you know, probably the last government in BC, and then maybe, uh, you know, you can go all the way back to, I don't know, even the late '90s with it, if you want. I think so. But, yeah, yeah. But we haven't been we haven't been funding, and it's getting to the point now where doctors are starting to sound the alarm. As far as what they appear to be saying is that we're slipping below what would be the the baseline for minimal standards of care. So I'll go through. we've got a, a few articles here, and I'll just I'll uh, kind of go over the bullet points here that uh, that I've highlighted. Cool. So talking about Surrey Memorial, I guess Fraser Health is assessing its hospital network to see who can spare staff for Surrey Memorial. Uh, so they're asking other health authorities for help. They uh, are kind of <laughs> shooting a flare up there, and uh, which uh, you thought was especially funny because uh, I mean there is nobody to spare. No. <laughs> so no. What uh, besides uh, emphasizing the point that they're trying to make to the government is this something that I mean? Can they summon? I mean, I don't know uh, what kind of resources are left here? Can they, can they summon nurses from outside the country, travel nurses, that kind of thing? What, uh, what are the recourses here?
1: Well, I'm sure they're, I'm sure that they are using travel nurses for sure. Mm. Uh, and, And in British Columbia, it seems that the bulk of the travel nurses usually come from either Ontario or the maritime provinces. Um, that's been my experience anyway. There's a lot of Nurses from those provinces that make their way around Canada and and work in in the short areas. There's only so many of those nurses, though. Though it can you know financially, the, there's some incentive there. But in terms of utilizing nurses from from either other health authorities or other smaller sites within the same health authority, uh, now I haven't heard the end the re, end result of that request, but. I think anybody who's working in a smaller center or in other health authorities within our province would say that there there's no wiggle room there, that those, those smaller sites are functioning on travel nurses yeah. are functioning on nurses on a contract and are functioning in a state of, of short staffing most of the time.
0: Right. And that would go across the board, I guess everyone from uh, administration to you know just all hospital staff including doctors is not up to uh what the hospital was designed to to employ and and that would match the patient load that's
1: coming in right and I, and i the only thing well there's a couple of things that make surrey unique but but primarily it's just volume it's how large surrey is as a community and how large that hospital is so we're not talking about we're short two or three nurses, and that's thrown off the shift. We may be short dozens of nurses on a team that is triple that, like huge, huge staff required. Right. And they're saying
0: they've been overwhelmed for months. So it kind of seems like for Surrey Memorial, there was no such thing as, I mean, they went into the pandemic short-staffed. They are basically still in a state of emergency and it's maybe even worse now. Than it was when they had more influx of of uh, COVID patients, so that tells you something. They've got patients waiting up to three days in the emergency department, so without even uh, access to like the administration resources to get them kind of assessed to see if they're going to die in the in the uh, the waiting room. Yeah, so the, the, I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like if you're trying if you take somebody in there, and I'm thinking you know, those things that aren't super obvious, but are time sensitive, like, uh, like different types of strokes, where mm-hmm. you can be getting, um, you know, some, some symptoms, but it would, re- you know, maybe take a little more diagnostics to realize what's going on. And then mm-hmm. you've got a window that's, you know, usually 24 to 48 hours. And if you could do something in that time, like all plays or whatever kind of uh, uh, clot busting measures are, are necessary, if it's a uh, if it's that type of stroke or, or whatever it needs to happen, there's, there's kind of a short window there. And if you don't get attention, then you see much worse health outcomes.
1: Yeah. Or even something as simple as, as like requiring sutures, uh, the faster you get your sutures done, the better it will heal. The faster you get a broken bone set, the the better it will likely heal for sure.
0: Right. So, and now they're, they're really panicking because they've got I guess the way it works in hospitals is you set your your summer holiday schedule quite a ways in advance, right? Is that how it works a, for nurses? A year in advance, yeah, <laughs> a year. yeah, yeah. That's that's wild, yeah. So they've got all their staff booked, and what they're seeing is that over the summer, you know, things are already critical, and and with people getting a break, they're going to dip down even lower. So it'll be. Yeah. An unknown level of insufficient care at that time. Mm -hmm. So doctors uh, at Surrey Memorial have been increasingly vocal about what they call unsafe conditions due to a staffing crisis that was foreseen but ignored, they say, despite numerous letters and alarm raised with administrators and senior health authority leadership. This is something that we've talked about for a while, I think. I mean, since we started this show and We've received a wide array of comments on YouTube and through different modes, uh, Facebook, different uh, social media communication formats about what people see as business as usual in comparison to a full-blown emergency. And it's interesting interesting to me to see some of the the comments that are, oh, you guys, you know, what are you talking about? uh, This is how it's been since the 70s then you know nobody operates at uh full capacity and there seems to be almost a, 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 a like an underplaying of the the seriousness of the situation mm-hmm. but i i think with this trend that has continued here despite all the noise that's being made we're just not we're starting to see now uh cases where there's uh like a they lost a a baby in in their uh, maternity ward in Surrey Memorial that was Completely due to a lack of resources, so yeah. you know you're seeing, and I mean that's a very that's a horrible, uh, blatant example of of how this is affecting our province, but I I don't think that you could call it anything other than an emergency, and I guess the confusing thing for me is is the lack of uh, of attention and the lack of of action by our government, and I wanted to ask you what you thought about that as far as what do you think goes through the mind of somebody who's in control of funding and in control of the resources that would help solve this ongoing problem?
1: Yeah, there's like there's such a disconnect between what the public is seeing, what frontline workers, whether they're doctors or nurses or support staff are experiencing, and then the way it gets explained or justified by... By the powers that be, they're within the health authorities themselves, or within the the government, and and there's a like a real sort of protectionist style there, where you know I wonder, in, instead of the minister of health and the government saying everything's okay, everything's cool, we're fine, we just need to, we just need to pull staff in from other hospitals and other health authorities within the province and and uh, move shuffle things around, like. It would be really refreshing to hear a, a admission that it is a crisis. And I think we're just right. Maybe that will come, but we're in this state where they're, where they're still trying to deny that there is a a crisis. And that's really, I mean, I'm out of it now, but I'm, I, I can recall many times where that was still the case when I was working, Where hearing that, hearing that everything is okay, everything's fine. And that is disheartening. Uh, disheartening for the staff who are working in it they're told not to speak it and, and that that case that you um highlighted where the, where there was uh the death of a of a baby the physician i believe in the news it was highlighted that the physician documented the the staffing concerns in their documentation and they and that was that's a controversial move because the powers that be do not like that they do not want the state of of short staffing or of extreme workloads to be documented.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I just, I can't imagine how they think that doctors are going to continue to tolerate this because ultimately, I mean, there's one contingent of uh, over a hundred doctors here that have collectively expressed concern. Yeah. And um, I I mean, they don't have the resources, they don't have the staff. Uh, One put it, It's like tying our hands and telling us to go do excellent work. It's an unfair expectation. Uh, The system is failing, but the physician is asked to continue to provide high quality care to the patient and the public. So, I mean, I can't help think how long would somebody tolerate this kind of stuff when, uh, like, uh, there's uh, they talked talked with a uh, I think it was an obgyn who was explaining that they spend the majority of their day talking to patients and apologizing for how long they had to wait. And the complications that pile up when you've got a, a delay in a maternity ward like that, there's all sorts of different crises that could happen just because of that that didn't necessarily have to happen at all if the staffing was at the correct levels.
1: Yeah, it's a particularly extreme Case and the public needs to hear a case like that because the unnecessary or preventable death of a child or of an infant will resonate with people. But I think there are across every unit of hospitals like that that are stretched to the max. There are examples of of consequences of the of the workload. You know whether it's uh, a person in a in an acute care unit who's not being turned regularly and develops a, a pressure ulcer. I mean, that's a much less newsworthy story per se, but there's a consequence to that. Someone could develop sepsis from that and die from that. Yeah. So, you know, these are things that, that there are consequences to the staffing issue that go beyond just a stressful shift, that go beyond someone waiting in an emergency department. The consequences have physiological elements to them as well, I think.
0: That's right. That further tax the system. Yeah. It's, uh it's a, you know it's the same story that we've seen in all facets of our healthcare system where it seems like we're running around putting band aids on things all the time, and there's no preventative care being done, or pre- there's no system in place that has the staffing and the resources and the funding to actually do preventative medicine in a way that's going to prevent these things that snowball into issues like I said, the type of issues that can cause more problems down the line just for, from a staffing concern or to actual, you know, patient death or worse outcomes in general.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, you know, the, and, and the pandemic had an interesting effect on that because during the acute phases of, of the pandemic, during the acute phases of each um, variant that rolled through the hospitals actually saw a decrease in in numbers in many cases of other things. Mm -hmm. The ICUs were obviously at capacity. There were an increased number of respiratory patients in hospitals, but there was a phase within the first year of the pandemic where the hospitals were quite, their numbers were actually down of other Mm -hmm. things. And so that there was a, there was a tax on certain, certain parts of the hospital systems, but there was also a, a pressure that was relieved Elsewhere,
0: you think that's because people were not going about business as usual, doing the regular activities. So there wasn't the like there wasn't the kid coming in with the broken arm from being at the playground. There wasn't the uh, sports injuries. Maybe the you know was that the the type of thing, or were people maybe just their focus had shifted? So and they were also concerned about going to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Like you would have to consider going to the hospital a little more than you would pre pandemic right because you're going yeah. to an actual center where you know there's going to be a higher chance of running into an infectious
1: disease so yep the both of those are true and then i would add to that that there was just this there was a language at least in our province of of being like really sensitive towards the healthcare system and only use it if you need it and take some of the pressure off and and that was the language that was being spoken so i think all three of those things but greatly like you said the fact that people were were people's daily lives were were modified and and people were not there were the amount of contagious or um communicable diseases were down in general so but now that, that that sort of tapered off and people got back to normal despite in some cases and for a period of time the numbers being down there was a eventually a tax on the system a strain on the system that that built and built and built and now we're seeing the end result of all of that and we're seeing also the the product of people like myself walking away from from mm. healthcare. Yeah, and there yeah. are a fewer people who actually want to do it. That's right. So as
0: the situation continues to degrade and uh, working conditions become less and less tolerable, more and more stressful, you you get that feedback loop where uh, physicians, nurses, hospital staff burn out, or they just turn their back or they develop a, you know, some kind of a uh, coping mechanism that can't be maintained, like uh, using some sort of a substance or or w- whatever it may be. Uh, basically, you're running your staff, you're going through staff faster, no mm-hmm. question about it. Mm-hmm. You were talking about, uh, was it yesterday you were in Vancouver in, General? Yeah, two days ago I was in VGH, yeah. Yeah. And what was that like for you walking through there?
1: I wasn't in the emergency department. So, I mean, I think that would be very, very different. Mm -hmm. Um, But I saw, I mean, a a tremendous volume of people and a tremendous volume of staff and, and the staff working really, really hard, working really, really hard. And it took me back to that feeling, the feeling of working really, really hard amongst a, a sea of humanity. Mm Mm-hmm. I overheard, I overheard, I just, just, you know, you hear things in passing and I heard someone asking a a staff member and I don't know if, if the staff member was a nurse or a a technician of some sort, but they said, oh, it's another day in paradise. (laughs) 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 And I thought, like I've heard, I I've heard that before Mm -hmm. coming from myself. And it's like, where you, you know, I've talked about it on the show where you, I would try to like, um, reframe what I was experiencing or like soften the blow of what I was experiencing. But I translated like another day in paradise to, Oh my God, get me out of here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, just before we started recording here, I asked you, what, what do you think is to me when I, I look at these situations and I, I just, I can't wrap my head around what would keep somebody working. Like, let's use Surrey uh, Memorial as an example. Mm-hmm. Why do they? Wh- why do our healthcare professionals continue? And uh, what makes them choose to do so under these kind of uh, less than optimal circumstances?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think for so many, I mean, there is obviously a sense of duty and a a sense of responsibility within their jobs. I also think, and I, I left the experience at VGH a couple of days ago, thinking that there's also a, a, a part of it that is about ego mm. and that that's not necessarily a, a bad word that it's not, I'm I'm not saying that as a, a slight on someone who is driven by ego and driven by like the status of their job or some of the prestige of working in like a larger, a larger center or a trauma center. There is a, a an amount of prestige there. I think I felt a sense of ego within my job and having a kind of a supervisory role within my job, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that that fixes everything or makes some of the like psychological or mental tolls of the environment. It doesn't make you immune to that because you've got this ego that's pushing you through. In fact, I think it can create kind of a a clash there, can create an internal conflict.
0: Yeah, it probably makes you more vulnerable, actually, because you're not when you're projecting this healthcare persona, and you're getting some kind of a positive benefit from benefit from that that personality that or the the status of being in a leadership position or whatever it may be. I think you're you've got less resources mentally to be aware of the damage you're taking.
1: You know. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how you, I like how you said healthcare persona. Cause like usually the healthcare persona is to be unfazed and the more you can seem unfazed or in some cases, like you kind of come across as, um, yeah, just indifferent, indifferent mm-hmm. to the madness that's around you. That's looked at as, as, as noble. Mm-hmm. And it's refreshing almost. If you can see someone now who, who, Admits it, or says we got a big problem here, or says like I'm really struggling to get through this day. But there's a cultural thing within healthcare that says that you don't do that. Yeah, they want a stoic kind of persona,
0: and Mm -hmm. they want you to go in there and be an oak tree, and (laughs) the winds can blow in every which direction, and you're fine, and you're fine, and you're fine until a big storm hits, and you've you know had some cracks at your bases, and it's taken a while, but then all of a sudden you fall and you don't get up. And I think that's what's kind of happening in a lot of cases with our healthcare professionals.
1: Yeah. And, and I guess it was just, and I I'm using VGH as an example, cause I was there, but you could say the same of Surrey Memorial hospital too, like for a big, big center where any time of day you're walking down the hallway or standing stationary and you see, you might see 50 or a hundred staff walking by you within a couple of minutes. And Knowing what we know now, what what I've learned in this process, there are people there that in that hundred staff who walked by me who would be struggling, either struggling with their mental health, struggling with harmful thinking, or or depression, or a state of anxiety, or substance use.
0: Ten percent will have a substance use, or uh, you know, or go home and lean heavily on alcohol, or or you know, some kind of a coping mechanism that's not going to serve them long term.
1: Yeah. And it's just, it's, it was interesting to, to keep that in mind as I observed my surroundings there.
0: Yeah. I bet. Was there any, like, were you comfortable being in that environment? Uh, like I said, maybe if you were in the env- uh, emergency department, it would be different, but just being in the hospital like that and not being an employee anymore, you know, it, it, was there, are you at peace with that right now or?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm at peace with it. I feel a sense of relief that I don't have to be in that, in that world with all of those psychological triggers for me. But there's also a piece of me that, that I think is still, still aware of, of some grief around the closing of that door. If I'm honest with myself, that, okay. that cause my knowledge is still there. And I, that part of, of, of a healthcare worker's brain that goes through a differential diagnosis or goes through like what the order of things should be in terms of treating something or just the knowledge that kind of comes in inadvertently or that comes out of your mind inadvertently that that I don't apply that to, to the career of nursing anymore, but I still have that information and it doesn't have anywhere to go like it did. So I don't feel sad about that, but I'm, but you know, just grief in terms of an awareness of, of those thoughts that come about and that knowledge that comes about that I still have. Mm. But there's also a big sense of relief. Yeah. I would say first and foremost.
0: (laughs) Relief first. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just read some more about what's happening with the maternity ward stuff there. So more than two-thirds of women's health providers at the hospital, we're talking Surrey Memorial, have signed a letter saying critically inadequate resources are compromising patient safety, resulting in an untold number of close calls and the death of a newborn, uh, which we mentioned in 2020. It's scary. I've had many colleagues come to me and say, every day I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to our patients. I'm afraid of litigation. I'm afraid for our nursing colleagues, it's a storm more than a hundred emergency physicians from several Fraser health hospitals came forward over the last two weeks about the crisis in their own departments. That's uh that's substantial.
1: Yeah, that's big more than a hundred. And, and I just, to those physicians who came forward, I mean, thank you because I, I know as a Again, speaking of as a former nurse, thinking of my of my my fellow former colleagues, they needed that. We needed that at the time. We needed physicians to come forward as a voice of support the The nursing voice, I don't think is enough, has been enough to create change. There needed to be some bigger <laughs> bigger guns at play, and I think the the physician voice is a really important one in the conversation,
0: yeah, I agree. To me, it looks like you've got two options if you're the government here. You either do something about this problem and get some funding and some resources and some programs, uh, you know, start looking at this realistically and meet the challenge head on without delay. Or I think if you push this any further than it's already been pushed, you're going to start to see those hospital physicians just walk away. Um mm-hmm. they don't uh doctors don't have to tolerate working under these conditions when I mean uh they've got opportunities all over the world, you know. Everybody's, and then what? Then what yeah, happens? Yeah, and then what is right, yeah. So it I continue to be perplexed by the the lack of action by our government. And what's also interesting to think about is um uh, you know, whenever the next federal election is, we're Probably, I'm guessing it's going to be late next year, and I would be surprised if we don't see a change there. What that would mean is, <laughs> usually when this switch happens, and under such extreme the the way the pendulum was swung before, I'm almost, I'm concerned that what we're going to see now is a switch towards austerity measures, especially in uh, anything to do with healthcare, mental health uh addictions i can Mm -hmm. see you know if if the conservatives come back in uh which it looks like they will then you're going to see less resources less funding and i mean that's just historically how it's been and i'm I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen i'm just concerned that that is a real possibility and and i guess you know when you look at the situation you say well we're we've kind of historically we're in a position now where we usually have funding <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what what is going on here uh you know is this country running out of money and if so i don't know i i guess i i would love to see where this money is this money that's being allocated because our healthcare budget is astronomically huge huge yeah where, where is the money going And, you know, all this money we spent on COVID, I know we wasted a tremendous amount on, we overbought uh, vaccines to the order of billions of dollars, et cetera. But what about the infrastructure stuff? You know, and what about the, I mean, it's not like the amount of resources we need is a mystery. It goes up at a steady rate with our population. So if you have all the information in front of you and you know what you're facing, how on earth can you not make it happen? I I just, I, it's obviously I, you know, it's, it's a complex situation, but it, it confuses me.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I know that in Surrey as a community, the plan is to build another, another whole hospital. And so there will be two large hospitals within that community. Mm. Uh, But I hear that. And I think, but there's no staff for the first hospital and the first hospital is running on travel nurses and they want people to come from uh, all corners of the province or out of province, who's going to work in that new hospital. And you've got people, you've got nursing as a whole that's less appealing to high school students and young university students where it's a a profession that is not particularly enticing right now. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you'll have an influx there. So I, without sounding really doom and gloom, like uh, another hospital. Um, <laughs> boy, oh boy,
0: yeah, yeah, it's a strange one. We will continue to monitor it, though. Mm-hmm. And when we do see something that you know moves the needle either back or forward, we will report it as best we can, absolutely.